1517 and on October 31st, many of you guys probably already know this, but Martin Luther posted his now famous 95 theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, of those 95 theses, they were 95 truth claims that he made, and his goal with them was to spark an academic debate. Uh, He wanted to start discussion around the thoughts that he was presenting. Uh, Little did he know, though, of the significance that his posting would have. Uh, His 95 theses are now marked as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, They ignited a huge religious movement in the church um, that called for a return to biblical doctrine and practice. Uh, Christianity throughout the world has never looked the same because uh, he posted those 95 theses on uh, that church door. Now, of all the important ideas that he raised in that document... Um, there's not one that is more fundamental than the very first thesis that he posted. His thesis reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, Martin Luther was stating that Jesus' command to repent was a call to a lifelong pursuit and practice of repenting. It was not a call to a once-and-done act of repentance at initial conversion. And fortunately, um, if you're like me, many of us, when we hear talk of repentance, when we, when we hear that idea of living a life of continual repentance, uh, that probably puts us in a somewhat somber mood. Repentance isn't something that like, uplifts the heart and excites us. It's not something that elicits happiness and joy, usually. Uh, When we think of repentance, we think about everything that we've done wrong that we must be forgiven for. We think about all the times that we make the same mistakes, the same sins over and over and how we have to keep repenting for them. We're reminded of our failures and shortcomings. In our hearts, we don't want to have to go on repenting all of our lives. It's discouraging for the believer It's not really an encouragement. Repenting is difficult and it's uncomfortable, especially when it means repenting to others. If our sin involves other people, repenting is even more difficult and uncomfortable. We have to be vulnerable in repentance when we confess our sins to one another. Sometimes we might even allow our thoughts to wander and to think that, is ongoing repentance really in line with the gospel? When we first repented and believed, we were forgiven for all of our past, present, and future sins. Why do we still need to keep doing it? For the non-Christian, Luther's thesis might actually confirm and remind you once again on why you don't even want to be a Christian. Who wants to sign up for that, after all? Who wants to be constantly living a life of repentance where they're despising themselves, it seems like, and they're forsaking their desires? Um, the life of a believer to one that isn't a believer probably seems very burdensome and bleak. And the thing is, ultimately, our fears of and dislike for repentance a lot of the time causes us to flee from it rather than run to it. We choose not to repent even though Christ calls us to. My friends, this is a fatal flaw. We know the areas of sin in our lives and we just let them be. 
we can ignore them or treat them as permissible. We might even intentionally indulge them for a time and just say, you know what, I'll just deal with that later. I'll come back to that when I want to or when I'm um, ready to kind of put that sin to death, then I'll deal with it. Uh, That is not what Christ calls us to. A friend of mine recently got engaged, and he told me that since his engagement began, he and his fiance have been struggling more with sexual sin than they were before. I asked him about why that was the case, and his response was simple, but very, I, I greatly appreciated his honesty. Uh, he said, he simply does not care sometimes if what he's doing is wrong because he enjoys it too much. You guys, doesn't that, doesn't that sound destructive? But the reality is we all have that attitude sometimes, a lot of the time. And all the while, that unrepentance is killing us. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to combat in the hearts of the Corinthians in our passage. So follow along with me as I read it. Uh, If you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there and then I'll read it. Read along with me. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now, these verses are meant to awaken us from our deadly stupor of neglect or despising of repentance. Paul understands the strife that repentance can cause us a lot of the time, but he calls us to it nonetheless. Why? Because life is far better than death. We'll see that Paul's message for this passage is summed up in verse 10. So look at that again with me. Verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. That is, um, that is the main idea of, of this passage. Alternatively, we see later on in that verse that worldly grief produces death. Paul is reminding us that repentance is not somber, it's not burdensome or bleak, it is life-giving, it is growth-inducing. Repentance is remarkably good for us, not bad. That gets to the aim of my sermon. I want you guys to know that up front. My prayer for us now is that the Holy Spirit would stir us up to a desire to live lives of repentance. I want Redeemer to be known as a church of people who repent. I pray Paul's reminder rouses that desire in all of us. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. So notice that Paul gives us a chain of events here. First, we have godly grief, and that leads secondly to repentance, and repentance leads finally to salvation. 
So we'll look at each of that, those links in that chain in a sense. Um, godly grief and repentance are good because of what they result in. So we're going to look at each of those three links. Um, so first, we're going to start with godly grief. Because without that, neither repentance nor salvation come. So look at verse 8. Paul begins the passage by talking about grief he has caused the Corinthian church with a previous letter. Um, Verse 8 reads, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So it's important here to get the context on what Paul is talking about. The whole letter of 2 Corinthians was written by Paul as a response to good news he received from Titus. Because the last time Paul had been to Corinth, it was anything but good news. When he was there, he was rejected. His teachings, his ministry, they didn't want anything to do with him. Before he had shown up, false teachers and opponents of his ministry had infiltrated the church and influenced all of the members there. Therefore, they despised him. They rebelled against him, and he actually left the church because he didn't want to make matters worse. Then he decided to send a letter. That letter wasn't 2 Corinthians, though, and it wasn't 1 Corinthians. From what we know written in Scripture, we know that Paul wrote a severe letter written as a call to repentance to the Corinthians between his sending of the 1 Corinthian letter that we have in Scripture and the 2 Corinthian letter. And we see in verse 8 that Paul actually feared the effect that that letter would have on them. He didn't want his ministry to be in vain. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them, in a sense, he's rebuking them because they have rejected him. He doesn't want them to read that and to hate him even more. He wants them to repent. He wants them to turn from what they were doing. And so he's fearful about what kind of response they have. But Titus comes back telling Paul good news that they have repented. They want to be restored in their relationship with him. Paul is therefore rejoicing in verse 9 as we see because they were grieved into repenting for they felt a godly grief as verse 9 says. And he goes on to say that they suffered no loss through us. Paul is saying that it was advantageous for them to be grieved in such a way that leads to repentance. So this is so different from our typical mindset. How often do we view grief as a good thing? We're tempted to view it as something that is always bad. I mean, by definition, grief is painful. Grief is mourning. It's sorrow. So if, if that's what it is, how could it be good? That's, it is good, though. Paul would not have risked grieving the Corinthians if he was... not if it was not loving for him to do so. His love for them actually compelled him to send the letter and to possibly grieve them into repentance. Now keep in mind that the grief that we're speaking of here is a particular form of grief. This isn't the grief that, for instance, one experiences um, as mourning over the loss of a loved one. Uh, We're talking about sorrow that is felt because of one's sin, We're talking about remorse when one is guilty of wrongdoing. This is regret. But again, we must take away from verses 8 and 9 the fact that all grief is not bad. There is good grief to experience. 
Godly grief is that, as we see here in the verses. It's beneficial for us. And it's important for us to establish what godly grief is and what it isn't. Godly grief is defined as being either godly grief or the alternative is worldly grief, and that's based upon the cause of our sorrow. So in the case of the Corinthians, they experienced grief after Paul explained to them that their rejection of his ministry was actually a rejection of Christ himself. Remember, Christ himself commissioned Paul to be his minister, to be his servant, to do his ministry. If they're rejecting Paul as Christ's representative, they're rejecting Christ as well. They're sinning against God in their rebellion against Paul. That is what grieved them, and that was a godly grief. They were grieved because they, were, they realized that they had disobeyed and dishonored God, and they were sorrowful about that. Godly grief is God-centered grief. It's not self-centered. It's about what we have done to God. It's the, godly grief is because, grief that we experience because we have done something evil in the sight of God, that we have gone against his standard. Um, and we would rather do good. We would rather honor him. We would rather love him. We would rather turn to him than turn away in disobedience. Godly grief is humble grief. It's concerned about God and not ourselves. The alternative, as we see in this passage, is worldly grief. Verse 10 again says that worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is sorrow that we feel when we've sinned against God, but we're concerned about ourselves. We're not concerned about him. It's not God-centered grief. It's self-centered grief. It's very selfish. It's the sorrow we feel when... For instance, we get caught doing something wrong and we're embarrassed. It's because we have to face a punishment now or some negative consequences because of what we did. We don't necessarily regret that we've done something against God. We, we regret that we got caught or we regret, regret that um, somehow our action ultimately hinders us or causes us to suffer. Um, it's inherently about me is utterly self-centered. There's no concern for God in worldly grief. So how do we distinguish these two? We have to ask ourselves, how do we know what's causing our sorrow? We have to ask ourselves questions that help us to discern that. For instance, you can ask, what elicits the grief in your heart when you've sinned? Are you sad because you've hurt God, or are you sad because you've been hurt? Is it the word of God that's grieving you, or is it the opinions of others? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This verse reminds us that the word of God brings conviction to the hearts of sinners. It shows us that the evil inside of us, it shows us the evil inside of us and makes us want to change. It brings about conviction. That's godly grief. The word of God causes godly grief. We're grieved because we have done something wrong, that we are at fault according to God's standard. Worldly grief is different. We're not grieved because of conviction brought on by God's word. We're, We're grieved because we have done something against the opinion of someone else or we have tarnished our reputation in the eyes of someone. 
God is not our standard in worldly grief. And it's an amazing thing when we can ask ourselves these questions and have the level of discernment to see if we're experiencing this godly grief or worldly grief. But that's not the case all the time. A lot of the time, we can't tell because our motives are mixed. They always are. We're never going to have purely godly motives for our grief. Let's say that I gossip about a friend of mine and uh, he finds out about it and he confronts me about it. I'm going to regret gossiping about him. And my hope is that I would be grieved because I have done something against God. Um, I have gossiped, and God calls us not to do that, to not be slanderous. Um, My hope is that I would be grieved by that. But the reality is I know that, at the very least, I would be grieved because I've been embarrassed, because my friend has confronted me about something that I have done against him. I'm going to be grieved because one of my relationships is hurt. That's self-centered. That's worldly grief right there. That first example was godly grief, and I hope I would experience that, but our motives are always going to be mixed. But don't let those mixed motives hang you up, though. We must set our eyes forward to the fruit of our grief. Remember, after, after all, that godly grief is good because it leads to something good. Otherwise, there would be no value in it. Godly grief is good because the pain it causes, no matter how deep, leads to an even deeper healing afterwards. Godly grief is not the end to which we are aiming. So look again at verse 10 in our passage. Godly grief produces repentance, whereas worldly grief leads to death. So it is at this point that we're going to begin shifting our attention from godly grief to what it produces, which is namely repentance. So let's look at verse 11 really quickly. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Godly grief produces earnest and eager desire to right the wrong that we have done and committed against God. Worldly grief produces none of those things. It might produce a facade of repentance, but that's not true repentance. It's false. A person experiencing worldly grief is going to be concerned about fixing their reputation rather than actually stopping their sin. Would you sin again if you knew you would get away with it? If so, you're experiencing worldly grief over that sin that you're asking yourself about. That's not godly grief. Godly grief produces a change in a person so that they don't want to repeat the offense that they committed against God. So this gets us back to the point that I made earlier regarding Paul's willingness to grieve the Corinthians. He knew that godly grief was far better for them to experience than no grief at all. And the same is true for us. It serves the same purpose as physical pain, if you think about it. Pain is a physiological response meant for our good, Yes, we hate the feeling of pain, but that's exactly the point of it. We're supposed to dislike it. We're not supposed to like it. It's supposed to warn us and let us know that we need to stop what we're doing because we're harming ourselves and we're going to make things worse. Or it's alerting us to the fact that there's something wrong that we're not aware of. If we liked the feeling of pain, if it was comfortable or pleasurable, then that would defeat its very purpose. If 
a broken leg didn't hurt you, then you would keep walking on it until you've just done worse damage to the bones to the point they might even be irreparable. The same principle applies to godly grief. It is a warning meant to alert us to the harm that we're doing our souls. The purpose of it is very good, even if it doesn't feel good to us. And that's because the godly grief leads to repentance. That's the healing act. So I've talked a lot about repentance already, but I haven't really defined it. But our church's statement of faith actually has a very good definition of it. And so that's actually going to be up on the screen. You can read along with me. Um, Repentance is a grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ in which the Holy Spirit enables a person to see the manifold evil of his sin so that he humbles himself for it with godly sorrow and hatred of it and turns from it toward God with a purpose and endeavor to walk before God with the desire to please him in all things. Simply put, repentance is turning the act of turning away from our sin and turning to God. It is pursuing righteousness and holiness rather than evil. It necessarily includes godly grief, but godly grief is not it entirely. We must not stop at godly grief and think that we have repented for our sins. If you are simply grieved, if you feel bad because of a sin you've committed, that's a good thing. But that is not itself repentance. Repentance is Active. It's an action that we do when we turn away from our sins and we turn to what is good and right. Godly grief leads to that, but it is not it entirely. Look at verse 11 again. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The Corinthians are making every effort to be innocent now in the sight of God, as verse 12 actually mentions later. They are eager to truly clear themselves of their sin. That is repentance. They're indignant. They're angry um, about what they themselves have done. They fear God. They're longing to be right with him. As, as this verse is saying, um, they have a zeal to do good. As I said earlier, godly grief uniquely produces repentance because it alone fosters a desire in us to change so that we do not continue offending God. Worldly grief cannot produce that. It will produce a false repentance. It produces death. So let's say that you lie to a friend and she finds out. She might say something to you about it that, and you might be grieved by that. If it's godly grief, you'll see that your deceit was sin. You'll see that God calls us to truthfulness and honesty, and you'll want to pursue that because you want to honor the Lord. You want to display his character. She might not even need to confront you. You might be reading scripture, and you might come across a passage that addresses that, and you might recognize that what you did was wrong. Or someone might bring up a passage that reminds you of that. This is godly grief. If you, if you see your life for what it was and desire to turn from that, that is true repentance. Let's take the same example, though. Let's say that she confronts you about it, and um, you're only grieved by what happened because you lied. Um, 
if, if you're experiencing worldly grief, you will not care that you've acted out against God's desire for you. What will you do? If, if she confronts you, you might try to just lie better next time so you don't get caught. Or you might even try to cover up that lie with another one. Ultimately, as you see, it doesn't, it doesn't cause you to stop the behavior. Just, you're just going to keep going in that sinful p- pattern and just leading yourself towards further depravity because your concern is not to stop your sin. Your concern is just to appear good. And that gets at the heart of why a life of repentance is a profound blessing, not a curse. It is not, it is not a problem. It is not a trial. Repentance is a good blessing. It's far from being burdensome and bleak. There's a fundamental error when we think that it is. When we reject repentance, excuse me, uh, we are choosing to believe that a life spent pleasing ourselves is better than a life spent pleasing God. Friends, that's a fatal lie for us to believe. Who created us? God did. Who gave us purpose to exist? God did again. What is that purpose? Um, I love how the Westminster Catechism puts it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how do we do that? God calls us. What does he say? He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. We were designed to live lives of obedience to God and his standard of holiness. That doesn't mean a life lived for God is without joy though. Consider Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 19, 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 3. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Do you guys see what these psalms are displaying? To walk in God's ways, to display his character, to walk in holiness is the greatest source of joy. Repentance sets us up up on course for holiness, whereas the alternative sets us up for a course towards sinfulness and greater depravity. Repentance, Repentance draws us closer to God. How could anything be more enriching and joy-inducing than that? How is that burdensome? So what if repentance means confessing embarrassing sins at times or facing tough situations or forsaking the things that we desire at times? The reward of pursuing holiness and pleasing God is far greater than those difficulties. God is infinitely good and righteous. To be like him is the greatest pleasure anyone could experience. 
A life of repentance, therefore, is a life of pleasure that no sin can compare to. Even more than that, though, a life of repentance leads to salvation, as 2 Corinthians 7.10 again tells us. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let's look now at what Paul meant by salvation. Few examples in Scripture are as powerful at driving home Paul's point here, like the lives of Peter and Judas Iscariot, the two apostles. In some respects, the men were actually very similar. Both sinned grievously against Christ. Peter denied him three times, and Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Both men were, after they sinned against Christ, they were both grieved by their sin. Matthew 26 says that Peter ran away weeping bitterly for what he had done. Matthew 27 says that Judas changed his mind and tried to give the money back while claiming that he had sinned against innocent blood. These two men sinned and they were very deeply grieved by it. Yet, in the end, Peter ended up reconciled to Christ and actually became one of the pillars of his church, whereas Judas killed himself in his anguish and he was called the son of destruction by Christ. So one was granted joyful salvation and the other was given over to despair and death. What led to the stark difference in their outcomes? The difference is that Peter was truly repentant while Judas was not. Peter's grief was a godly grief while Judas's was worldly. Peter's desire was to restore himself to Christ, while Judas did nothing to show that that was actually his desire. Yes, he wanted to return the money, but he did not seek Christ. He did not seek to confess his sin to him and to repent and ask for forgiveness. Peter sought forgiveness in God because he knew that he had sinned against him. And just think about the contrast between the Peter at the end of the Gospels and then the Peter of Acts. Peter, from that point forward, never denied Christ. Peter, from that point forward, faced torture. He faced ridicule. He faced martyrdom, ultimately. Um, but he, he recognized his sin and turned from it. He pursued holiness, he pursued righteousness, and would not deny Christ again. Judas never did anything like that. Because of that, Peter was shown mercy and Judas wasn't. The Christian life begins with repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. Mark tells us that Jesus came preaching repent and believe in the gospel. After Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost, the crowd was grieved by their sin and asked him what they should do. Peter responded, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift gift of the Holy Spirit. We have all sinned and are unable to save ourselves, yet we may all repent and have faith in Jesus Christ who purchased for us the forgiveness of our sins in his sacrifice on the cross. Without such a conversion, we face the same fate as Judas, I pray for all who have not repented. Again, the Christian life begins with that. We must do that. 
repent and turn to God and receive his salvation if you haven't done so. Don't cling to your sin as though that can save you or that God will overlook it. God is a just and righteous God. He overlooks no sin. Your sins cannot save you. But many of us here have repented and believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. For those of us that have, know that life continues as one of repentance as well. It doesn't end at the beginning of our walk with the Lord. As long as we continue to sin, we are called to repent. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul's not arguing that ongoing repentance keeps us saved, though. Don't misunderstand him, what he's saying. You are secure in your union with Christ. He is saying that ongoing repentance is a sign of your salvation. It is the promised fruit of one who has been transformed by the gospel and is now inhabited by the Holy Spirit who convicts and humbles sinners. Your repentance is a reminder for you of your continual dependence on Christ, and it also reminds you that you are once and for all secure in him. Think of how incredible that is. Every time you repent, you are displaying the power of the gospel. When you repent, you are presenting yourself as a living testimony of the glory and love of Christ who saved you from your sins. It is a privilege and honor to be able to do such a thing. We will go through these lives continually sinning. Until Christ returns, we will not be free of our sin. But when we repent of it, when we pursue righteousness and holiness, we are reminded of the gospel. We are reminded of our Savior who has forgiven us of those sins. And we are displaying the power of the gospel through our lives. Now, with that said, let me close with a little more direction on how to apply all of this to our lives. Because remember... Repentance is a good thing. My hope is that we would see that pursuing repentance, to, to live lives of repentance, that we would seek to do that. But we want to we know how to do that. So there's two main points of application that I want us to draw from this passage. And they both kind of foster a culture of repentance in the church. Now the first one is we must be willing to prompt godly grief in others. That is to say, when it is necessary, help others recognize their sin. We all have blind spots, and we all fall prey to the deceitfulness of our own sin. We need each other to lovingly help us see our sin for what it is, and to help us be grieved by it appropriately so that we can repent and turn from it. Remember the fear that Paul spoke of, though, in verse 8. I'm not saying that being a source of godly grief is going to be easy. Even Paul feared that. But but that doesn't change our duty to one another to do it. If we really believe that godly grief is a healing pain that ultimately um, leads to salvation, then we will not withhold that from one another. Even if that requires an act such a such as church discipline even. A whole sermon series could be preached on how to go about um, prompting godly grief in others. Um, in d- different circumstances call for different things. Um, I can't really talk about all of that now, but ultimately, if we claim to be Christians 
who are genuinely concerned for the spiritual well-being of one another, then we must be willing to prompt one another in godly grief. And the second point of application is that we must embrace godly grief ourselves. Certainly, if we're called to prompt others in it, then we must be able to receive it or to embrace it ourselves, to accept godly grief. It is not a thing to be feared. We shouldn't try to move on from it too quickly. I know I have a tendency when I'm grieved by my sin, I want to so quickly um, recognize that I am forgiven for it that um, I overlook the fact that I did evil, that I did sin. Of course, we must rejoice in the grace that has been given to us that, that prompts, that promotes our ability to be able to turn from our sin, but we must not move on so fast from our sin that we forget that it's sin in the first place. Let's allow ourselves to sorrow, to be sorrowful over our sin. Let's embrace it as a gracious gift from God when we are grieved in a godly manner. The conviction from the Spirit is meant to be good for us and is for his glory. Do not reject the Spirit's leading in that. And also be humble enough to accept the rebuke from a friend um, and view that as an expression of love. I said at the very beginning that my prayer was for the Spirit to stir us up to pursue lives of repentance. Seek that life as you remember that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Pray with me now. I'm going to read a prayer from Valley of Vision. It's called The Convicting Spirit. Thou blessed Spirit, author of all grace and comfort, come work repentance in my soul. Represent sin to me in, an odious, in its odious colors that I may hate it. Melt my heart by the majesty and mercy of God. Show me my ruined self and the help there is in him. Teach me to behold my creator, his ability to save, his arms outstretched, his heart big for me. May I confide in his power and love, commit my soul to him without reserve, bear his image, observe his laws, pursue his service, and be through time and eternity a monument to the efficacy of his grace, a trophy of his victory. Make me willing to be saved in his way, perceiving nothing in myself but all in Jesus. Help me not only to receive him, but to walk in him, depend upon him, commune with him, be conformed to him, follow him, imperfect but still pressing forward, not complaining of labor but valuing rest, not murmuring under trials but thankful for my state. Give me that faith which is the means of salvation and the principle and medium of all godliness. May I be saved by grace through faith, live by faith, feel the joy of faith, do the work of faith. Perceiving nothing in myself, may I find in Christ wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. We pray this in his name. Amen.